As you're taking your seat, you can go ahead and grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3. I'm not a, a, a big boxing fan. I appreciate the sport. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sports fan for sure. I, I appreciate all kinds of different sports. Um, last night, there was a, a heavyweight championship in the world of boxing. Some of you may, may be familiar with this. And I was intrigued by it. I've been following it for a little while. You see, this is the second um, bout by, between these two fighters. Um, these two fighters are both undefeated champions. Both of them have a perfect record. And the last time they fought, they actually fought to a draw. And so there was a lot riding on this fight. This fight was going to determine who the, the ultimate champion was, who the true champion was, who was the greatest of these two opponents. And as much as I was interested in the fight last night in one sense, I mean, I didn't stay up and watch it. It was late. I get tired quickly. I was interested to see who would win the fight, but, but I've been really interested in more of the backstory and really following along a bit of the journey of these two fighters. You see, in one sense, these fights are not one in the arena surrounded by thousands of fans. They're one in the gym through long hours of suffering. The moments of training, the days of devotion, the kind of commitment level that they show when nobody else is looking is often the determining factor for who will be the true champion. As in many areas of life, the one who can endure the greatest amount of suffering is often the one who wins. It doesn't always come down to the one who has the greatest talent or abilities, the one who on the outside seems to possess um, everything that a champion needs. Oftentimes, it's the one who simply can endure the greatest amount of suffering and pain, who can outlast their opponent, even sometimes when it looks like this opponent they're facing is stronger, is more powerful is more capable. That's so often the way it is in so many areas of our lives. And as Christians, there's a sense in which we find a parallel here. As Christians, you see, we are called to endure suffering. In fact, it's a call for all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, and that is one of the dominant ongoing themes of 1 Peter. He's writing to a church who is suffering for Jesus Christ, and the call repeatedly is not to flee suffering. It's not to try to escape suffering. It's not to simply try to uh, compromise and give in, because let's be honest, listen, in the midst of suffering, nobody enjoys the suffering. Everybody wants it to stop. Everybody wants it to end. Everybody is tempted to throw the towel in. But when push comes to shove, especially when it comes to the Christian life, the call is to not quit, to continue on, to keep enduring all the way to the very end. Winning the Christian life, in many ways, is about enduring to the end. It's where we will get our final prize. But Peter here gives us the secret of enduring. He tells us how it is that we can continue to endure the suffering that we often face for following Jesus Christ, how we can actually make it to the very end and receive the prize at the end of our lives in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And here's the simple answer he gives to us who are followers of Christ this morning. The way you endure, the way you find victory, the way you ultimately win in this life and on into the next is this. You look to the one who has already won. That's the key. That's the secret sauce. That's what we cling to. It's not that we ultimately have to win the battle. It's the fact that we get to look back and see that the decisive victory has already been won by our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so as a result of that, listen, as Christians, we're actually, in one sense, we're not living to win the victory. We're living from the victory he's already won. And when we grasp this, it enables us to endure in powerful ways any suffering that may come our way for following Jesus. Anything the world throws at us, we will be able to endure as we cling to the one who has endured greater than us and won the victory on our behalf. Peter says this in our passage this morning, so let's read it together. In the context of suffering... In verse 18 of chapter 3, here's what he says. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, all you have to do is do a cursory reading of this passage to realize that this is a very complex and confusing passage. Some of you, you've even sat here and you've read it with me now, you've looked at it and you're like, what in the world is Peter even talking about? This is the most difficult passage in all of 1 Peter. Some have actually argued that this is one of the most difficult passages in all the Bible. There is controversy and complexity in every single verse in this passage. And as difficult and and complex as this passage is, let me just tell you, the message of this passage is actually incredibly clear. And and my heart for us this morning is, listen, we're going to wade through the complexities and the difficulties, but I don't want us to lose sight of the clear message that's being communicated here. And here's what it is. Listen, Jesus is our conquering king. Jesus has won the victory. Jesus has overcome our greatest enemy, and because he has, we cannot be defeated if we are found in him. This is the point for which Peter is writing this passage. Every part of this passage is screaming out the victory of King Jesus, the conquering power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, from his death to his resurrection to his ascension, the whole thing screams out, our Savior has won the battle. And you can imagine the kind of life this breathes into a church that is suffering for Jesus. 
who is tempted to think maybe, maybe we're not strong enough. Maybe, maybe the world is stronger than we are. Maybe we should just give in. Maybe it's not worth it. Maybe the pain is too great. How in the world can we keep enduring? And he says to the church, you can keep enduring because Jesus has already endured and won. This isn't all riding on, on you. It was riding on Jesus and your confidence can be found in him. And I want us to see three things as we look through this passage that relate to the victory that's been won by our Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's the first thing. Our conquering king has defeated sin through death. Our conquering king has defeated sin through death. You see, the cross of Jesus Christ was a decisive victory. Sometimes we are tempted to think that we are alone in our suffering. Whether that be suffering because... We live in a sin-cursed world and we struggle with sin and we're surrounded by sin or whether we're suffering for Jesus Christ, the temptation is to feel like we're utterly and absolutely alone, that nobody knows what we're going through. I'm the only one who's experienced this, but Peter quickly reminds us that we are not alone in our suffering for Jesus Christ. The path that we are walking for Jesus is the same path that has been walked by many before us, but catch what he's telling us here in verse 18. This is actually the very same path that has been walked by Jesus himself. Again, verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might, might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. It is in understanding the suffering of Christ that we are able and made capable to endure in our suffering for Christ. Now, we've already seen throughout the book of 1 Peter that suffering is being held up as a reality in the Christian life, but Jesus has been held up as an example for how to suffer well. Um, chapter 2, Peter addressed that. Into chapter 3 already, we've seen that. We respond the way Jesus responds, we act the way Jesus acts, and we, we display in that our Savior himself. But we see a different nuance here in this section. You see, at the same time that Jesus is our model for what it looks like to suffer, the suffering of Jesus is absolutely unique and unrepeatable. It's not the same as our suffering. Jesus did something unique in his suffering. He defeated sin through his suffering, through his death. Suffering here and death are meant to be um, parallels. So to understand the suffering of Jesus, we have to understand that he suffered to the point of death. He gave his very life. That is the epitome of what it meant for Jesus to suffer. He died. And notice that Peter says here, in this unique way, that Jesus Christ suffered. He died once for sins. Again, Christ's death was the decisive act whereby he paid the penalty for our sins. That's what he's driving home here. It makes it even more explicit. He, he shows us what this means, the righteous for the unrighteous. What Peter describes here is what theologians call the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. That is the idea, listen, that Jesus Christ in his death, he suffered our punishment in our place. He was the perfect substitute. He was placed forward for us. 
He endured the wrath of God that we deserved. He was the only righteous one, which makes him the only suitable candidate. We are the unrighteous ones who deserved the wrath of God and the judgment of God. And yet here is Jesus who steps in the gap. He suffers all of our punishment on our behalf. And here's the best part. He completely atones for our sin. In other words, God accepts the full payment of Jesus Christ. Jesus is our Savior because his death was a once-for-all sin offering in which he who never sinned satisfied the wrath of God by standing in the place of sinners. Listen, this isn't just a part of the gospel. Listen, church, this is the gospel. Without this truth, we have nothing. We have no hope. We have no future. But here we see our Savior stood in our place and he received our punishment. And you notice the reason why? Peter is so explicit here. This is is it right here. Look at this. That he might bring us to God. In other words, if he didn't do this, you and I would suffer the consequences of our sin, which is this, full and complete alienation from God, suffering the wrath of God for all eternity. And so in here, what we see is this, the deep love of God toward sinners. We see the heart of God that longs to restore sinners like you and me back to himself into deep intimacy in relationship. David Walls, um, an author, has put it better, better than I can, and I, just, I thought it would be helpful for us to read this quote together. Here's what he says. Just just let this soak into your hearts, church. Listen, the ultimate purpose of Christ's death was to bring you to God. Jesus died to reach across the gulf between God and humanity. Taking our hand, he leads us across the territory of the enemy into the presence of God the Father. Jesus Christ opens the way and introduces us to God the Father by removing sin as the cause of our separation from God. Jesus Christ provides access to God and makes us acceptable in his sight. Here's the point that Peter is trying to make. Suffering and death do not get the last word. Jesus Christ has overcome our greatest enemy. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. Death is what we all deserve. And yet when we look at the gospel, when we look at the death of Jesus, we see that in his death, he put death to death. It no longer has the ability to conquer us. It no longer has the final say over us. And you notice how Peter frames this here. He says this again, look at the word of God with me. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. What Peter is doing here is describing how exactly Jesus defeated death. One half of the equation is that he himself was put to death. He had to step into our place. He had to suffer on our behalf. He had to take the wrath of God that we deserve. He had to do that. But listen, the truth is, if Jesus stayed in the grave, our faith is in vain, Paul says. But here, we see that, yes, he was put to death in the flesh, but notice, this is the good news of the gospel, but he was made alive in the spirit. Now, the key to understanding what Peter is saying here is, 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 using, is understanding excuse me, how he uses this idea of sp- flesh and spirit. Now, 
The way we understand what it means to be made alive in the Spirit here is going to help us interpret the rest of the passage. So this is not a small detail. How we understand this is of vital importance. But you'll see here that what Peter is doing is drawing a contrast in some sense, but also a parallel between this idea of the flesh and the spirit. He uses the flesh-spirit distinction more in a parallel fashion than some people realize. He does the same thing if you look across your page in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 6. He says, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh, notice this, the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Though Christians die, in in other words, that is, they are judged in the flesh, that's what he's talking about here, that's what it means to die, we're judged in the flesh, the wages of sin is death. Their faith is not in vain because, listen, they will live in the Spirit. Every one of us is going to die. Even Christians are going to face the reality of death. We know this. I mentioned last week um, that I went to visit Gene Sutherland. Some of you know Gene, and and, uh, and many of you already know. You've seen the, the news about this, but last week, Gene passed away, and she went home to be with her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And listen, the reality of death is not something that Christians need to fear. It's something we need to understand is a true reality, is something that we're all going to face. But the hope that we have, the reason we don't mourn as those who do not have a hope is because we understand what awaits us in the Lord Jesus Christ, that though we may die, be judged in the flesh, we are going to have the same life that God himself has. In Christ, we are all going to be made alive. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. Listen to what it says. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Listen, there's a reality that our fleshliness and our sinful flesh, we're going to experience the reality of death. But listen to what he says. In Christ, we shall all be made alive. So here's here's the parallel that he's drawing here. The being made alive in the spirit is not some mystical realm in which we're alive. It's not talking about the fact that, listen, though our bodies were absent from our bodies, we're present with the Lord in spirit. That's not what he means. What he's talking about here is the reality of our future resurrected body. That's what it means to be made alive in the spirit. There is a day coming when the dead in Christ will be raised to newness of life. We get to taste that here and now in the spirit of God. But what awaits us, listen, Christian, is a new physical body that resembles the physical body we see in the resurrected Jesus Christ. The flesh we inherit from Adam is corruptible, it's perishable. And when we die in the flesh, our natural body is buried in the ground, but at the resurrection, it will be raised up as a spiritual, here here it is, an incorruptible body that will never see death or decay again. All Peter is saying is that Jesus, who was born in the flesh as we are, 
though without sin, he died in the flesh. He was hung on a cross. He physically suffered and died like we are going to suffer physically and die. In the natural body, he was buried as we all will be, but then Jesus was raised in spirit. He was made alive in the realm of the spirit with an incorruptible spiritual body. You know, in many ways, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And in fact, I'm going to get you to turn there because the parallels are so helpful and they're so striking. Keep your finger in 1 Peter 3. Flip over to 1 Peter, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I want to read a chunk of scripture here because it's just, I hope it is just going to solidify what Peter is saying and encourage your heart. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you can back up to verse 42. Again, notice what he's talking about here. It says, so, uh, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. He's talking now about our current bodies and our current state. What is raised, look at this, is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, notice this, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And listen, you say, why does this matter so much? Listen, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You you cannot physically push your way into heaven. This is a spiritual reality. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, he says, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must uh, put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Here's what awaits us, Christian. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And you want to know why this matters? You want to know why this truth matters so much? Here's what Paul says. It's exactly what Peter's been communicating throughout this entire letter. In light of this, because of this reality, Christian, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord, in your, the Lord, excuse me, your labor is not in vain. You see that? He's saying, endure, keep going, keep pressing on. The best is yet to come. Do what you want to this body. I have a new body awaiting me. You see, the Christian hope is not that when we die, we merely continue as a spirit being. 
No, we await the resurrection of the dead when we will receive a body that will never decay, will never feel pain, will never die, will never again be subjected to the power of sin. We will suffer and die in this life, but we will also live again because Jesus has defeated sin through his death. That's the hope that Peter first holds out to us. Our conquering king has defeated sin through death. Here's the second thing that he teaches us. Our conquering king has declared salvation through judgment. Our conquering king has declared salvation through judgment. Remember, Peter is describing here Christ's triumph. Again, it should be clear by now that this passage is all about the victory of Jesus. His death was not defeat as the enemy thought it would be, but the once-for-all sacrifice that actually atoned for sin. It was followed by the resurrection and the ascension, which Peter in this context is addressing, which he is highlighting for us. It's in this context, listen, of the death, the resurrection, and the ascension that Peter writes about Christ now doing something very fascinating, preaching to spirits in prison. Look at what it says in verse 19. This is incredibly confusing. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey God, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, Well, the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. That's just the first issue in the text, okay? Martin Luther writes this in his commentary on this passage. He says, a wonderful text this is, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certainty just what Peter means. I say yes and amen. I, just, I say that too just to say that I want to approach this passage with great humility. There are things in the Bible we can be absolutely certain about. Listen, the atonement of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all these, these doctrines that we've already even looked at this morning, we can be absolutely certain. But there are some things in the Bible where we just look at and scratch our heads and say, Lord, when I get to heaven and I get that imperishable body, I hope you'll tell me some of these things that I can't figure out. But I do think we can actually get a good understanding of what he's trying to communicate here. First question really is this, who are the spirits in prison? Who exactly is he talking about? And there are multiple views on this, okay? There are at least four views that are held by people when it comes to this passage. Two of the views I don't believe line up in any way with Orthodox Christianity. Um, They're views maybe you've been familiar with. Some people believe um, that these spirits are, first of all, the spirits of human beings who have died and are now in hell. And so the theory goes that that Christ, after he died and before he was resurrected, he, he went down and he descended into hell and he preached the gospel to people who were already in hell. And in doing so, he gave people a second chance at salvation and essentially cleared hell out of all the people who had first rebelled against him. That, that is nowhere else found in the scripture. It's not even found here. It, it's a theory 
um, that I don't believe holds any weight. It's certainly not provable from this text, nor is it provable from any other text. Um, the Bible tells us that hell is a permanent place for people who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no purgatory. There is no place that you can go and go and repent for your sins and make right what you made wrong in this life. This, listen church, this is so important. We preach this gospel. The reason we are called to go and preach the gospel is because we believe this life is the only chance you get to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we're on mission. That's it. If there's a second chance after this life for people, then what we're doing doesn't even matter. In fact, I think Jesus could preach it much better than I could, so I should just shut my mouth and wait till he goes and preaches in hell to them later maybe. This doesn't work. Okay? It, just, it does not work. The second view, it goes something like this, that these spirits are the spirits of evil um, demons who are imprisoned in hell as well. And so what this is saying is similar to the first view. This is Jesus proclaiming a gospel message to spirits, to evil demons who have rebelled against God and essentially giving them a second chance. Again, not found in scripture, does not align with any orthodox theology. The demons who rebelled against God look at wonder, listen, at wonder in the grace that has been shown to humanity because they have not been extended the same grace. Their condition is permanent. Their rebellion finished them. There are two views that I think align with evangelical theology. The first one I'll tell you um, is, is held by some even today. Um, it's, it's contemporary as well as ancient. It goes all the way back to Augustine in the uh, 3rd and 4th century. And this view um, essentially argues that what's being referred to is a past event. So you can see from this text that it appears that the timeline is given, the time of Noah, in the days of Noah, that God had patience. You know, Noah was building the ark. Here we have the world rebelling against God. God's going to punish the earth. He's going to judge the earth with a flood. He warns Noah and his family. And Noah, even according to 2 Peter, becomes a preacher of righteousness. He's telling people to repent. The judgment's coming. The flood waters are coming. You need to repent. Some argue on this basis that actually this is uh, um, referring to the spirit of Jesus Christ who was actually present within Noah at the time of Noah. And so you can kind of see how this follows, that, that Noah was filled with the spirit of Christ and he was proclaiming, repent, turn from your sins. The, the, the spirits in prison in this context would be people, people who are dead in their trespasses and sins and needed to hear the hope that could be found in the saving power of God. Now, I'll tell you, there's some things that are appealing about that view, and certainly there's some things that I think nothing in that violates any kind of orthodox Christianity. Nothing in that violates the scriptures in any way, um, shape, or form. But I don't believe it is the best possible solution to this text. It's not, the, I think, the best reading of this text. You see, we've already, if, if our understanding of what it means to be made alive in the Spirit is correct, we've already determined this. Listen, that Jesus, he died and then was made alive in the Spirit, meaning he was resurrected. And then if that's true, so in his resurrected condition, follow now what the text says. Verse 19, in which, in which what? In his resurrected condition, in his resurrected imperishable body. He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Do you see why it matters what you do with that made alive in the spirit? 
So here's what we've eliminated. We eliminated first the first two views. I think we've already just eliminated the, th the third view if the way we're interpreting this is correct. And so what Peter is saying is that somehow in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, something boldly was proclaimed. And it was proclaimed in a very powerful way. And so he alludes to this, this story, this um, event that happened to help us understand exactly what's taking place through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I would just say this too. This is the majority view among evangelical scholars. That's not why I chose it. Um, I did my homework. I researched this. I had to wrestle through the text. And, and I am, by the way, this is the hard part about preaching sometimes. I know you feel like I give you all the homework. I really don't. Um, I'm just trying to give you the cursory level overview of some of this. We don't have time to get into all the details, but the majority view among scholars today is this, that Christ, this is Christ's proclamation of victory and judgment over the evil angels in his resurrection and his ascension. These spirits in prison, um, most believe, are actually evil angels, and according to Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 4, you can jot that down and go back and look at it another time. In Genesis 6, 1 through 4, the, the rebellious demons, the demons who had left the presence of God, who had joined ranks with Satan, they were cast to the earth. And some, while on the earth, Genesis 6 tells us, had uh, sexual relationships with women, and as a result, they were judged by God in a more severe way. They crossed boundaries that they weren't supposed to cross. And there was a significant and severe punishment. It was a delayed punishment, by the way, which explains the patience that happened during the days of Noah. The punishment wasn't immediate. Uh, there was a time period where they were still active on the earth while, while Noah was building the ark. So why is he referring to these specific angels? I think because of the, the gravity of their sin, here's what you need to see, the gravity of their sin actually incurred an immediate sort of judgment upon them. There are demons who are still awaiting a final judgment, but some of the demons, their actions were so severe, they're getting a foretaste, so to speak, of the judgment that all of those who rebel against God are one day going to experience. They're imprisoned, and there's some context to this that's helpful. It's likely here that Peter is actually referencing some non-biblical literature, some apocryphal literature known as the book of Enoch. This was a, a commonly read book, not only in the Jewish communities, but even amongst the Gentiles. They were very familiar with this. Certainly in the church, it would have likely become a reading that was commonplace for many. And in this book of Enoch, um, you can just imagine, Enoch was, was um, a man who's mentioned in the early chapters of Genesis who it says he walked with God and then he was no more. In other words, in one sense, as far as we know, he didn't experience death like the rest of us. He went instantly into the presence of God and maybe we can assume he, he received um, some kind of divine blessing because of his faithfulness to God during this wicked time. Well, Jewish tradition began to use Enoch as an important figure. And there's an entire book called the Book of Enoch. And in this book, um, the tradition, by the way, Peter's not affirming all the events, although there's a chance that what the Book of Enoch says has some truth to it. But in the Book of Enoch, it talks about these watchers. And these watchers are fallen angels who abandoned heaven. They slept with human women and produced children referred to as giants. This aligns with this is the way they interpreted, by the way, in the Jewish world, um, Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. But from those 
giants, from the bodies of those giants, when they died, the spirits within them became demonic spirits who actually roamed the earth. According to the book of Enoch, these evil spirits taught people deeds of shame, injustice, and sin. And it says this there, that in, they will continue to corrupt the earth until the day of the great conclusion. In other words, to the day of the final judgment. When God wraps up this entire broken world and he makes all things new, they're going to continue until that day. And interestingly, in this Jewish story, these watchers, they actually come to Enoch. These watchers, these demonic beings who committed this great sin, they ask Enoch to go to God and appeal to God on their behalf for a second chance. They ask Enoch, say, go to God and ask if we can be forgiven, if we can be made right, and ask not just for us, but on behalf of our, of our evil, wicked offspring as well. Let's see if we can make this whole thing right. And Enoch comes back. He goes to God, and God gives him the message, and Enoch comes back with a proclamation. That's what it tells us there in the book of Enoch. And he proclaims to these wicked spirits who are in prison. He says this. He says, you will not be able to ascend into heaven unto all eternity, but you shall remain inside the earth imprisoned all the days of eternity. Moreover, the watchers, it says, would see the destruction of their sons who helped to increase evil on the earth before God destroyed it with the flood and who will continue to wreak havoc before the final judgment. This seems to be the same event that is being referred to in the book of Jude and in the book of 2 Peter. Let me put those scriptures on the the screen for you. Jude 1 verse 6 says this, and the angels who do not, did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness, catch this, until the, day, until the judgment of the great day. 2 Peter 2, 4 through 5 says this, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Do you see, do you see the, 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 the same, it's like the same idea is being expressed. And in both those cases, they appear to be grabbing hold of this Jewish tradition because it was so familiar. It was such a, a vivid picture in the minds of people. It's like he's using it as a powerful illustration, not necessarily affirming all of the details, but affirming the principles and the general truths that are found therein. All of this simply means that 1 Peter 3, 19, in there, the imprisoned spirits are fallen angels who disobeyed God in the days of Noah and as a result are now a part of the demonic realm. And in his resurrected, catch this, this is the point, in his resurrected glorified state, Jesus proclaimed his victory over these fallen angels over the demonic realm. Just like he promised he would, he told them their defeat is imminent, it's decisive. And then he, he comes alongside the believers and he wants to again offer them hope. And I love this. He says, 
verse 20, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Listen, judgment is coming. You can hear this. Judgment is coming. Judgment is promised. Judgment can be seen because of the cross, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. But, 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 there is also salvation. There is hope. You see, Jesus, in one sense, I think is being compared to Enoch. He's like Enoch, who proclaimed to these evil spirits, your rebellion will result in your judgment. It is sure. It is final. God is faithful to his promise. And here is Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection and in his ascension saying, don't you see? God has been faithful to his promise. The judgment is coming. He declares the message of victory over evil and over what they thought they would accomplish in destroying humanity. In the same way that God would not let them destroy humanity, but instead promise them judgment, God would spare humanity. He would grab a hold of eight people, eight people, and he would start anew with them. You see, this text may be difficult to decipher, but the message really is not. He uses this tradition that was so familiar to his readers to drive home the victory of Jesus over evil. He declares, I have won. I am victorious. He declares that his suffering has led to victory. And his victory is the victory that we find our hope within. And he saves, notice this, his salvation comes through judgment. You see, he goes on to talk about Noah here and the flood that happened and how God saved Noah, and then he relates it to baptism. You see, Noah's flood was an Old Testament event that displayed God's judgment of sin and sinners, but it also powerfully displayed God's salvation of the righteous. And when you hear the righteous, don't think those who are good enough to be saved, don't think those who are worthy enough to be saved, don't think those who did enough good things to be saved, think of those who trusted that God would save them. They trusted in the righteousness of God. And at that time on the earth, when God flooded the earth and destroyed all of humanity other than Noah, notice this, there were only a few he saved. There were eight persons in total. That's a remarkable thing. And you can see the grace of God in that. You can almost hear, right? You can hear Abraham pleading with God, God, if there there are 50 righteous persons, will you spare? Will you spare the city? Yes, if there are 50. What about 40? What if there's eight? God's answer is yes. If there are eight people who trust in me, listen, I will spare them. I will save them. I will take them safely through the waters of judgment. And I want you to see how this parallels the experience of the church. You see, church, listen, listen. The the church may seem very small compared to the world around us. We, We face the backlash of the world for following Jesus Christ. We face the oppression and people around the world face persecution for following Jesus in places around the world right now. We talk about this every week and it's necessary to right now. Listen, there are people dying because they chose to follow Jesus Christ. God says, listen, you may be small, but I want you to know something. You are precious to me. And though the world may judge you, I want you to know this, I have saved you. Keep preaching. 
keep holding fast, keep enduring. You see, the judgment of the flood, it prefigures, church, listen, it prefigures the judgment that's going to come. God is not going to flood the earth again. He's not going to destroy the earth with a flood. He promised he would never do that again. He promises this, he will destroy the earth with fire. And when that day comes, you want to know what he says to the few of us who are holding fast to him? He says, you have nothing to worry about. The same way I saved Noah and his family for trusting in me, I'm going to save you not only now but in the end when they're facing my judgment and my wrath because they have wickedly rebelled against me because you have trusted in me. You will be saved. He says baptism corresponds to this salvation and judgment. It corresponds specifically to this salvation through judgment. He says here in verse 21, baptism, which corresponds, it's like this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, notice this again, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You say, how does baptism correspond to the flood, to the judgment that God poured out there? Well, listen, this is part of the reason why we believe in baptism by submersion, okay, The waters of baptism, it's not just about being cleaned. It is about that, but you have to understand something. When somebody goes under the water, the significance about putting under the water is this. Everybody who is submerged under water eventually, listen, if they're not brought back up, will what? Die. You see what he's saying? Just like the flood. Listen, everybody who is submerged under the water was experiencing, the water was God's judgment. And God unleashed that in a deluge across the wicked earth. And everyone paid for their sin. Except for eight people. They were hidden inside an ark. And that ark, listen, was bombarded with the water. It was submerged, so to speak, in the water. It was blasted with the judgment of God. But all of those who found themselves inside the ark were saved, carried through the judgment, released on the other side. I love what Tom Schreiner says. I'll put it on the screen. He says this. I think, yep, there it is. The waters of baptism, like the waters of the flood, demonstrate that destruction is at hand. But believers are rescued from these waters and that they are baptized with Christ, who has also emerged from the waters of death through the resurrection. Just as Noah was delivered through the stormy waters of the flood, believers have been saved through the stormy waters of baptism by virtue of Christ's triumph over death. And the waters remind us that we deserve judgment. We deserve death. But coming out of the water reminds us that God has not given us what what we deserve. He has given us what we do not deserve, life in him. He's given us grace. As Noah fled into the ark, so we flee into Christ. And in him we escape all judgment 
say, well, what does Peter mean then by saying that baptism now saves you? Because if you read that at face value, listen, it appears as if he's saying you're not actually saved until you're baptized. And in that moment, then you're finally saved. That is to misread this text and to misunderstand the context. That is, again, nowhere in the scriptures. Baptism saves no one. But what it does do is show the salvation that's already taken place in the life of a believer. He says this, that it saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body. In other words, not as an outward physical act that washes dirt from the body. That's not the part that saves you. The physical act is what he's saying. This is what he's saying. The physical act doesn't save you. But instead, as an appeal to God for a clear conscience, in other words, as an inward spiritual transaction between God and the individual, Peter is arguing that baptism is a picture of God's rescue of repentant sinners. God has saved us from the floodwaters of his judgment and into a new life in Christ. He's saying, listen, there's no magical power in baptism to save you. It is simply, listen, a reminder of the appeal you once made to God to save you from your sins. When somebody steps in the waters of baptism, that's what they're declaring. God has already saved me. He's given me a clear conscience. I repented of my sins, and I have received a full pardon. And I am assured of that as I look to the gospel and see that Jesus hung on a cross. He paid it all for me. He rose out of the grave, and he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. That's what we declare in our baptism. It's a powerful statement about what God has done for us. It's not an attempt to save ourselves. When God gives a sinner a clear conscience, that person has that assurance that he has been forgiven and he stands in a right relationship with God. That's what it means to have a good conscience. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't it an awesome thing, church, to know for sure that you will stand before God and you will not receive judgment and condemnation? Instead, you have and you will receive salvation. So I just appealed to some of you as believers, and and I heard a, a, a wonderful, hearty amen, but let me appeal to some of you in here today who cannot say that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. And you've just been hearing about the reality of salvation. You've been hearing the reality of judgment. And, and listen, it falls upon you right now in this moment to consider your spiritual state before God. That if you were to stand before God right now, and if you stood with him apart from faith in Jesus Christ, you need to be told this, you need to hear this with love and compassion. Listen, right now, you would be judged by the almighty God for your sins. But right now, God offers to you the same salvation that he offered to Noah and his seven sons and daughters and wife. He offers to you the same salvation that every single one of us has received. Listen, regardless of the sin you've committed, regardless, listen, of how much you have loved the things of this world, if you turn to Jesus right now, if you put your faith and trust in him, he will give you a clear conscience. If you believe in the gospel right now, your sins can be washed away. You can be made as white as snow. You can be assured in this moment that you have a right standing with God Almighty, that Jesus Christ has taken the judgment for you so that you can stand in the presence of Jesus for all eternity. And I would beg you, I would appeal to you right now to appeal to God for a clear conscience on the basis of the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Christian, your baptism is a reminder that even if you suffer judgment from this world, when you come to die, you will not suffer the judgment of God. Our conquering king declared salvation through judgment. We have salvation because Jesus was judged on our behalf. This is what we proclaim in our baptism, but we also declare something else in our our baptism. But as we suffer well for Jesus, here it is, our conquering king dethroned Satan through vindication. At the heart of this passage, listen, is a reminder that our Savior Jesus Christ has been vindicated He suffered and he died. He was raised from the grave and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Look at what it says in verse 22. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. This idea, who has gone into heaven, by the way, is the same word back in verse 19 where it says, in which he went and proclaimed. He uses the exact same word, the same participle. It's as if he's saying this to us. Listen, you want to know how you understand how he proclaimed this message to the enemy? He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he is seated. Here's what this means. Listen, his work is finished. He has nothing left to do when it comes to the victory that's been won. He is seated. It's complete. He's at the right hand. Here's what that means. He now holds all authority. He is in the position of power and authority. It is complete. It is the statement to the enemy that they have feared most. From the very beginning, Satan presumed too much. I mean, how, how, how ludicrous, how irrational was it for Satan to look at God and think that he could be God? To think that he could rebel against God and win? Isn't, doesn't that ever blow your mind? How could he think this was a good idea? How could he think he was ever going to get anywhere? How could he think that he could be powerful, more powerful, more authority than God himself? And yet, that's what he did. And listen, church, that's what every person does who does not bow the knee to Jesus Christ. He believed he was worthy of praise and adoration. And he, listen, he deceived Eve and Adam, and he usurped dominion from Adam. God called Adam to possess God's own authority as a king and ruler, to take dominion over the earth, to rule on his behalf, to spread his glory from sea to sea, from coast to coast. Satan comes along and in one swift move, he steals the authority from Adam. And so the New Testament calls Satan the God of this world, the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air. You see how these are all statements of power and authority that he, listen, rightly under God has for a time. He has a network of demonic beings aligned with him and his wicked purposes to deceive the nations, blinding the minds of unbelievers, keeping them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And throughout history, Satan has had immense success. He has used his power and authority supremely well. In the Old Testament, he deceived the nations so that hardly any pagan people came to a saving knowledge of God Almighty. 
even God's chosen people, Israel, who were supposed to be a light to the nations, couldn't reach the nations and couldn't even hold fast to serving and honoring the Lord themselves. They, they traded God for fake idols who are actually demons. I mean, it looks like Satan's going to win. It looks like Satan is triumphing all throughout the Old Testament. We see over and over again, how come God's people can't win? Where is the power and the might of God? And God keeps telling his people, keep trusting me. Keep enduring. Keep being faithful. Hold fast to me. I promise I will make all things right again. And at the right time, God sent his son into the world. His son who comes with light and life. He fulfills all righteousness as the true son, the suffering servant, the promised king. In the ministry of Jesus, he begins to heal the sick. He gives sight to the blind. He calls the lame to stand up and walk. He raises the dead. He casts out demons. He sends out 72 disciples with his authority. They come back marveling, declaring, even the demons submit to us in your name. He tells his disciples in John 10 verse 10, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. In Matthew chapter 12, 29, Jesus says, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. He says that in the context of casting out demons. Church, listen, the cross, the resurrection, the ascension is all, listen, Jesus reclaiming the authority that is rightly his. It is Jesus coming into the territory that has been ruled by Satan and saying, your time is finished. No more. He is tying up the strong man and he is plundering his house. And Satan, in his confusion, did not understand how God would bring this ultimate defeat and destruction about. In one moment, he stands before Jesus, bringing him onto the top of a mountain and says, if you bow down to me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. And in the next moment, he is sending out Judas to betray Jesus with a kiss leading him into his suffering and death. And in the death of Jesus, the God of this world thought he had overcome the God of this universe. What Peter is talking about here, these angels, authorities, and powers, these are the demonic beings. This is Satan in his realm. And when Satan, at the moment of the cross, felt that he had finally won, that he was the victor, that he was the ultimate champion, that he was the undefeated one. Listen, they rolled the stone away and they found that the tomb was empty. Jesus is alive and Satan is dethroned. Jesus, in that moment, had stripped Satan of his power and authority. Colossians 2.15 says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. You see, what we see Peter saying is this, church, don't worry, the vindication is complete. Jesus Christ, your Savior, your Lord, he is seated at the right hand of God. Satan is subjected to him, and God will vindicate those who endure righteous suffering just as he vindicated his beloved son who suffered for us. You say, what's the point? Here's the point, church. Who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Listen, church, if God is for us, who can be against us? No one. Because even the demonic realm is under the authority of Jesus Christ. And in light of this, listen, Jesus comes to his disciples, and he makes, listen, this is going to make this statement so much more powerful and profound to you, I hope. Listen, he comes to his disciples, and he says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Church, do you see how powerful this is? We don't shrink back in the face of suffering. We don't cower as if we're actually being defeated. We stand firm on the victory that's been won by Jesus Christ. Our conquering king has already won the victory. And we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Amen? God, help us to believe this. Help us, Lord, to hold fast to this. Father, to see how you have worked in salvation history. God, to overcome the power of sin and the power of Satan, the power of death that faces all of us, to know, God, that you had planned all along to send your one and only Son that he might die in the place of sinners, that he might rise in the newness of life, that he might ascend in exaltation to the right hand of the Father where he remains right now in glory. Well, God, give us a fresh vision of our conquering king. And may we live faithfully out of the victory that he has already won. We pray this in his powerful name. Amen.